This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. Thanks for all the feedback at the Facebook page and uh, at thenextjew.com. Yes, I realized that the last episode, the sound wasn't, uh, you know, as good as it could have been. I sounded like I was at the bottom of a well or a trench or a cistern. Hopefully this week we'll have uh, worked out those technical issues. So thanks for the feedback on that. Also, um, just want to give a shout out to Andy Alpern out there in Svat for his technical advice um, on how to improve the sound quality. Thanks, Andy. Uh, moving on. So if you recall from last week, the way the show is going to be structured, the format is we're going to start out with a little bit of a summary of the portion of the week. This week, we're talking about chapters one through three in the book of Genesis, and I'll follow that with sort of a, a brief-ish meditation about something that sort of caught my fancy from those first three chapters. So let's begin at the beginning. Chapters 1 through 3 of uh, Genesis recount the creation of the world. Actually, it actually recounts that creation twice. The first account, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 4, is kind of the stuff of uh, the children's room at Sunday school. And then, on the third day, you know what God did? God brought together all the waters under the sky into one place. And then you know what happened? Land appeared. It was there under the water all the time. And God called that land earth. And all the water brought together, God called that sea. And boy, let me tell you, God saw it was good. But that's not all. God told the earth to become green and grassy. And trees shot up full of seeds and fruit. How tasty. God thought it was good too. And it was evening and it was morning. The third day. Throughout this story of creation, God is referred to as Elohim, and he, he, and I use that pronoun consciously, he, um, he spends the week speaking and making things happen. Each day, God says something and then brings them in a different category of creation into the world. So, you know, for example, the first day, there's light, and then there's darkness, etc., etc. And each day, um, God climbs the evolutionary stepladder. And finally, on the sixth day, humans appear on the scene. And then on day seven, God generates the most important creation of all, rest. The second account, also rich fodder for Sunday school, begins on verse five in chapter two with a different telling, with a more physically present God, a God known by the ineffable tetragrammaton that the Jews often will substitute in pronounced Adonai. God forms man with his hands in the mud, blows life into the man's nose, plants a garden, gives pretty explicit commands to his human charge. Then he goes for a walk, setting in motion a series of events that results in curiosity, wrongdoing, enlightenment, embodiment, and punishment. So there's lots to talk about in this week's selection. Let's get to it. I want to talk about misconceptions, misrememberings, and the various misdemeanors generally associated with the creation story, and also consider a counterfactual and Chekhov's gun before we're through. 
This is vodka. So when I teach this text, uh, students, well, they, they kind of roll their eyes. Admittedly, I teach adolescents, they do a lot of that, but uh, even adults respond with a similar level of impatience. So after hearing, you know, the numerous times about how they've already done the story and they've redone it and learned it and relearned it, I, I tend to ask the following question. That if it can be answered definitively with evidence from the text, I would skip the whole unit, give everyone A's and, and move on, blah, blah, blah. And so here's the question. On what day did the whole business with the tree of knowing good and evil happen? Do you have a Tanakh nearby? Go ahead, look it up. I'll wait. Any luck? I thought so. And, and tied up into the answer to that question is the biggest, probably the biggest misconception of all about the creation story and that there is one creation story. We often learn the story of creation at a very young age, and it often accompanies arts and crafts projects uh, that involves glitter and those, you know, rounded-edged scissors, uh, and they don't really fit very well on your hand. And usually the, the penultimate illustration in the series involves a naked man and a woman with, you know, fig leaves on the appropriate parts of their bodies, an apple tree with a snake in it. <clears throat> But if you go back and look at the text, you'll notice a number of, of things. First, the tone at the outset, like in the first chapter, is very different than the tone at the end, chapters two and three. And so is the storytelling. And incidentally, some of the basic facts are a bit uh, different. But before we go into the matters of plot, character, dialogue, uh, I want to pause and, and ponder how these stories are subdivided. The Torah is divided into five books. And each book is traditionally divided into parshiot, the plural form of parsha, which is translated badly into English as portion. So, there are five books in the Torah. And, for example, the book of Genesis is divided into 12 parshiot, with each parsha divided into seven aliyot. An aliyah consists of a number of verses, or psukim. All these divisions and subdivisions are most important in the synagogue setting, where each Shabbat morning, the portion of the week is chanted aloud to the congregation. At the beginning of each aliyah, the gabai calls out the number of the aliyah, invites a congregant to come up to the bima to stand alongside as the Baal Kore, the reader, chants the text. Now, if you attend enough Shabbat services over the course of many years, you will well familiarize yourself with the various parshiot. You might know that Yitro, for example, is in the book of Exodus, but you might be hard-pressed to pinpoint its exact beginning or end in the text. Looking in the Torah scroll would probably not be any more helpful um, because there are no markers in the Torah. The only kind of indication you have of beginning of end of sections are, are basically gaps in the script. Open sections, known as ptuchot, from the root for open, indicate a change in subject. So you might see a line left unfilled or a blank line. Minor breaks or closed sections known as stumot from the root for sealing up appear as a gap in the middle of a line. These breaks are represented in a humash or printed uh, Torah text with the letter pei or samech respectively. But as a guide, eh, they don't really help the reader that much. So along comes Stephen Langton. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury between 1207 and 1228, 
And for centuries, you know, Christians have studied the Bible as avidly as Jews, but they probably didn't spend as much time in synagogue. Anyway, uh, they needed a different system. I mean, if you think about it, it's much easier to count than to memorize parshiot. So a different system evolved. Stephen Langton undertook this project. He divided the Tanakh into numbered chapters. And by 1518, Langton's system appears in the first two Bomberg editions of the Bible, and it's been the industry standard ever since. So um, you have this Langton system of chapters and verses, and you have the traditional Parsha and Aliyah system. And in about uh, 617 of the 779 instances, or almost 80% of the time, Langton's, Langton's breakdown into chapters aligns with the traditional division into aliyot. The thing is, the creation story falls into that misaligned 21%. If we look at the creation based on the breakdown into aliyot and chapters, we emerge with two very different readings of the first story. Chapter 1 ends with the end of day 6. Elohim saw that everything he made was exceedingly good. Chapter 2 begins with a closer. Thus were finished the heavens and the earth with all of their array. And then there's some discussion about what that, that first Shabbat, about what Elohim did and didn't do. And then we have verse 4. These are the beginnings of the heavens and the earth. They're being created at the time of Adonai, God's making of earth and heaven. Hmm? What? Didn't verse 1 conclude the creation? Why are we talking about begettings again? Well, we're talking about begettings again because we're begetting again. We're starting a new aliyah. In the traditional breakdown, there is a break between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 4 belongs to a different story, or shall we say, another story. Whereas the first chapter is all about presence, Elohim dominating each scene as he churns his way through a list entitled Stuff to Create, Chapter 1 sets out to tell a story thin on plot and original dialogue, but heavy on special effects. The story here, in contrast, begins with God, but also with absence. Here's what's not here yet. No vegetation, no rain, no humans to till the soil. Wait, what? What a... Spoiler alert! Yep, here's another one of those uh, misconceptions again. You know, Eden was supposed to be a worker's paradise. You know, no work. But here we are, now two verses in, and we already know that this story ends badly. Or at least it ends where it should end, with the world being the world in which we live. What a bummer. Anyway, the story continues. Water surges forth, mixing with the earth, and out of this mud, God crafts the human by hand and inflates him like a balloon full of life, mouth to nostril. Then, according to this account, then, then, and only then, God plants a garden in Eden and plunks the human down in it. Then God landscapes, and despite the odd dangling grammatical uh, construction, privileges the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowing of good and evil. By verse 15, God has put Adam to work in the garden, quote, to work it and to watch it. This is also a bit of a spoilery tidbit, I think, because we kind of assume that the you know, life in the garden was not working, kind of lounging. Uh, and then... God commands Adam, blah, 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 worries that Adam is lonely and, and, and he matchmakes kind of badly. By the close of the second Aliyah, Adam has named all the animals but remains alone. By the close of chapter 2, we understand why men marry and how pleasant life is in the garden. 
uh, being nude and all that without any hint of shame. But by the end of the third Aliyah, Adam and the woman, now named Chava, are punished and garbed in leather as if they are uh, mere moments away from being expelled from the garden. Which brings me to the second misconception. What was the punishment for Adam and the woman's wrongdoing? Go ahead, get that Tanakh again. Look it up. I'll wait. Find it? Many folks will tell you without any hesitation whatsoever that the punishment for eating from the tree of knowing good and evil was exile from paradise, or in Christian terms, the fall. But in fact, if you look closely at chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, the humans, as well as the snake, are punished. In fact, the snake was punished first for the wrongdoing, and none of those sanctions involved leaving the Garden of Eden. God condemns the snake to the most hated animal status, a locomotion on his belly, and an endless supply of dust to eat, quote, all the days of your life. And to the woman, God said, quote, I will multiply, multiply your pain from your pregnancy. With pains shall you bear children. Toward your husband you will be your lust, yet he will rule over you. And last to Adam, God said, quote, Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You are not to eat from it. Damned be the soil on your account. With painstaking labor shall you eat it from it all the days of your life. Thorn and sting shrub, let it spring up for you when you seek to eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread until you return to the soil, for from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust shall you return. Only when Elohim realizes that the humans, not having divine insight into good and evil, also have access to the tree of life, does the idea of expulsion take hold. God provides the first humans with some coats of skins, and after setting a winged sphinx with a flashing sword to guard the way to the tree of life, God sends them packing. It's at this point that I pause to ponder a particularly odd counterfactual. A counterfactual or counterfactual history is a thought exercise that has led to many a gripping novel, where a timeline is extrapolated from a certain point in history where an event didn't happen or was different from the way it actually happened. So, for example, uh, Michael Chabon's Yiddish Policeman's Union or Philip Roth's The Plot Against America imagine worlds very different from our own. Chabon sets a detective pot boiler in a world where the U.S. voted to implement the 1940 Slattery Report and thus provided land in Alaska as a temporary haven for Jews fleeing Nazi Europe. Uh, Philip Roth writes an alternative autobiography where the isolationist Charles Lindbergh defeats FDR in 1940 and American anti-Semitism becomes mainstream. In this spirit, the counterfactual that I have often considered is this. What would have happened had the woman told the snake to go and bite himself? Well, here's an alternative timeline for uh, events from chapter 3, verse 3. So, despite the snake's credulous queries and the raw visual appeal of the tree, the woman ultimately says no. Adam, like the woman, does not sample from the fruit of the tree of knowing good and evil, and the humans, not realizing that they were naked and the shamefulness therein, they welcome God who is strolling about the garden and perhaps go for a little tootle in the garden before a proper dinner and bed. The end. But here's where the scenario gets a bit weird. If one considers that Adam and the woman did not know they were naked, nor the difference between good and evil— one thing might never have led to another, and they would never have had sex. In which case, humanity would have ended right there. 
in the garden with Adam and the woman living out their days in bliss. Which kind of doesn't sound like bliss to me, actually. Uh, Let's actually consider another fork in the road here. What if Adam and the woman eventually figure out the and eventually and their descendants continue to until the present day where all 7 billion of us still find ourselves in a uh, very, very, very eastern suburb of Eden and lounging around in the nude eating fruit. Though it sounds a bit uh, crowded. Doesn't sound so bad, that scenario. But what kind of world would that be? A world of nudity, which would make the invention of belts unnecessary. But uh, it's a world somehow in harmony with nature, I guess, despite the population explosion. And a world of much more leisure, as food would miraculously cultivate itself. But would it be a world free of quandaries about good and evil? A world of childlike innocence? I don't know. I'm not sure. The snake presented a quandary to the woman, querying, and this is a quote. Tell me, photographs, he asked him knowingly. Photography? Yes. Nudge, nudge, snap, snap, grin, grin, wink, wink, say no more. Holidays, nuts. Could be, could be taken on a holiday, could be, yes, uh, swimming costumes, you know what I mean? In our counterfactual case, she chose obediently and rejected the snake. But she could just as well have chosen to eat from the tree in clear violation of the divine edict which she did. So was she truly uninformed about the difference between good and evil? You know, many have likened Adam and and the woman to children, arguing that they did not know about good and evil or right and wrong, but eh, because they hadn't eaten from the tree yet. How could they know? But, But they did know about two equally stark and oppositely arrayed categories, obedience to God and disobedience to God. Now, I don't want to bore you too much with a long-winded exploration of Saussurian structuralist theory and you know, his idea of binary opposites. And, but you know, but the, I think you know, some consideration of binary opposites does contribute here a little bit to our discussion because these two ideas are set in opposition to each other. Um, and that relationship is important. For example, uh, you, know, you have, for example, work and vacation. Uh, they're not contradictions, they're not polar opposites, but they're sort of complements, and you, you, you appreciate one because of the other. Um, however, binary opposites are not complementary. They have a power dynamic. You know, the first term is often the dominant one, and it's privileged over the second, which is subordinate. And according to Jacques Derrida, meaning itself is defined in these, quote, violent hierarchic terms, where one term governs the other. You know, uh, for example, the world organizing binary of male-female has many social and political implications. And the thing is about binary opposites is that they align really nicely. So uh, you could take obedience to God versus disobedience and align that with right and wrong, uh, and align that with good and bad, or male and female, or white and non-white, heterosexual, and so on and so on and so on. So if that's the case, weren't Adam and the woman already living in a world of knowing good and evil, although theirs was a much more rudimentary formulation? Wouldn't it be better for them to acquire a more sophisticated, more nuanced understanding of the world so they could manage themselves better in it? Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. Clearly that was beside the point. So here we are, back, and in classic Chekhovian fashion, the tree of knowing good and evil is the gun on the wall in Act 1 that surely must go off by Act 3. 
or should I say chapter 3. The humans are punished and cast out, which sets the stage for our next podcast, Genesis chapter 4. As always, you can leave a comment for me at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash TanakhCast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or we're at thenextjew.com. That's thenextjew, one word, dot com. And hopefully by now, my page will be up and going on iTunes. So you can subscribe there and leave a comment or a review. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you throughout the week. And more coming in a week-ish or so. Come back now, here. Yeah.